We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. When it's time for a new credit card, the best ones do way more than just buy stuff. And that's why U.S. Bank offers credit cards that make every day more rewarding. Earn cash back. Score points when you shop, dine out, travel, or binge watch. Or get a low intro APR. U.S. Bank credit cards were designed to fit your lifestyle. So make every day more rewarding. And check out usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Welcome in to the Rotowire NFL podcast brought to you by Dynasty Owner. I'm your host, John McKechnie, joined as always by Mario Puig. Mario, we are into mid June now at this point, uh, so uh, the weather's getting kind of nicer, but uh, otherwise, uh, that's about the only good thing about things that are happening right now, unfortunately. Um, but uh, how's it going for you otherwise? Are, have the bugs dissipated? Uh, not really, but it's it's easy. I just don't go outside very much, and um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I'm done moving, also, so it, or, or more or less, I'm done moving. So even if there's some bugs on me, I'm probably still just kind of taking it easy right now. Um, I'll let them get away with it for a while because I'm in a good mood, you know. But um, when I get mad about whatever my next issue is, um, it, there's going to be a hell to pay. Yeah, Dead bugs, as far as I can wrath. see. <laughs> at least we're not uh on the, on the east coast where all the cicadas are the 17 year cicadas those things are insane yeah i might have mentioned it on on several previous podcasts but uh one got in my room before i knew what they were a few years ago and it, it sounded like a rattlesnake and i thought there was an actual rattlesnake <laughs> 
in my room, which is not like, like you might think you'd be ready for that. And you, you might think you have a plan if there's a rattlesnake in your room all of a sudden, but it's really easy to convince yourself that, uh, you're just going to have to stay in the corner and like, you know, wait it out, starve there and, and hope it goes away. Cause, cause getting on the floor seems like a bad idea. Yeah. The, um, uh, luckily I eventually spotted it and it was like, Oh, well that's not a rattlesnake. I, I thought it was just like some big bird bug or something. Cause it, cause it was still a gigantic cicada. Um, but yeah, that, I don't, I don't want to deal with those anymore that I would have to kill if it came in the room. Like I, I need like a, a, a jar or something to throw at it. Cause it, cause it's probably that big, but I'm, I'm not wasting any time. I can't deal with those. The the old Austin Powers method of my plan is to soil myself and come up with a new plan. That's basically what I did. And I'm, you know, not quite that far, but it, it was getting to that point. It's scary. I mean, yeah, I, I don't mess with rattlesnakes. I don't mess with cicadas. So yeah, that double whammy. Um, all right. So let's move into... Uh, the topic f- topics uh, for this week. So you had an article uh, go up on the site earlier this week on your Dynasty Watch series talking about guys uh, to consider uh, selling in your respective Dynasty leagues. Uh, but before that, the, the biggest news that came across the NFL wire uh, this week what was Monday when Dalvin Cook announced that he is planning to hold out uh, from all the team activities until he receives a quote-unquote reasonable extension. So let's let's break this down. Let's look at, you know, some of the historical comps for this um, and, you know, what it could mean and, and what the ADP uh, fallout could mean for both him and then uh, the, the backups in Alexander Madison uh, and Mike Boone. So start out with your initial reaction. Well, I think people are wrong to assume that Dalvin Cook has no leverage here because uh, they tend to look at that when, when they look at it that way as like, oh, he would not project to earn as much money over this whatever stretch of time. You know, like this chart's bigger than this chart and this is the chart that happens if he doesn't show up and these other things happen. And one of the things they assume will happen in that case is that the Vikings will just eat it and be just terrible this year and and basically give up, throw in the towel right at the start. And I think that's not going to happen. I think Mike Zimmer is like, he's, he's going to, get some goons if he needs to, to get the front office to see this the right way. Because if he doesn't do something this year, like he could just get fired. And if he doesn't have Dalvin cook, it's going to be real easy to have a bad season with that team. So I think it's pretty reasonable for Dalvin cook to hold out right now. And I think it's reasonable for the Vikings to pay him, especially since he's not seeking uh, the, the Christian McCaffrey, Ezekiel Elliott kind of money. So they have about 12 million in cap space right now. The Vikings do. Okay. And I'm trying to pull up, uh, Dalvin cooks particular number. Um, so yeah, he's, he's at about 1.3, I think 1.4 million on the, on the cap hit this year. So his per year figure would not be any higher than just giving, using the cap space they already have to basically just give them a raise. And, if if that's the question for them, why would they withhold the money? What are they going to do with it anyway? I don't I don't really know what people expect them to do, especially after trading Stephon Diggs. It's like you you take away you take Diggs off the books, replace him with that rookie contract for Jefferson. Savings are there now. What are you putting them toward? Are, you, are they really going to just withhold them this money on the principle of like, well, we don't we think we should be just pay you less, even if we're not doing anything with this money that we're saving. Otherwise, I don't know. People seem to think that this is going to be like, he just folds. I think it's like the Vikings and him will just kind of meet in the middle. Um, so 
whatever it is that people think that you know that they're trying to t- convince themselves like Cook will play because he has no leverage or uh, Cook you know might play because they just might pay him, which is what I think. I think it's I think it's wrong to assume that that Madison is going to lead that backfield. And even if Cook were out, even if he were holding out this year, I think um, I don't know. Madison is probably overrated by people right now. I think I think I was too low on him as a prospect. I thought he was basically like a round five or round six kind of player. They took him with one of the last few picks in round three. So it's it's like we could think of him as a fourth round pick almost. And that was a reasonable place to take him. But it's also not safely distinguished from Mike Boone. Um, he, he's unproven, of course, too, but uh, he showed a little bit. And he's, he is more athletically explosive than Madison. He's just not as big. So it's it's one of those things like Madison would be good, yes, if Cook didn't play, but I don't think that the inflation scarcity price, you know, the, the, the after-the-fact price increase is not, in my opinion, worth chasing. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, when it comes to Matt, like, I think it's it's easy or maybe important one way or the other, depending on, on how you're viewing this to look at past, uh, running back holdout cases and look at, at how they, uh, unfolded. So, I mean, you could go back to Le'Veon Bell. I don't think that this is going to go, uh, that way, of course. And then, uh, last year, uh, Melvin Gordon had, you know, and we kind of snuffed, snuffed this out early. Is like, he had no leverage because it had been proven throughout the latter part of the chargers 2018 season that, Eckler and, and even Justin Jackson were, and who we'll get to a little bit later, uh, the offense didn't really fall off when Gordon was out because those two uh, were, were so effective. So the Chargers could kind of uh, look at that and then also look at the production that they were getting from Gordon and be like, okay, we're, you know, keep holding out. That's that's totally fine with us. We're just going to keep on rolling for, for a little bit. Um, I, so I think that Cook does have a fair bit more leverage than that because he is A, more talented, and B, um, you know, the, the options behind him are significantly worse than, than what the Chargers were dealing with a year ago. Yeah, definitely. Cook is better than Gordon, and the alternatives that the Vikings have are, are nowhere, nowhere near the level of Austin Eckler. So, <clears throat> I mean, I, 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 I can understand why people think various things are going to happen, but to me, I think it's pretty clear they're just going to come to some sort of middle ground because they were probably planning for this scenario in the first place. I don't think this is a surprise. And if they're not surprised by it, they would have done something else to uh, basically add more talent to the offense because you, you remove Stefan Diggs, then you remove Dalvin Cook. You might as well just lay down forfeit. And uh, that's that's clearly not their plan. So um, I would just draft Cook basically where you would otherwise. And uh, he's a guy you could have valid injury concerns about. Like you don't need to fixate on the holdout to to convince yourself to maybe, you know, take a receiver instead of him or some other running back. I don't know. But if he's on the field, he's he's one of the rarest talents at running back. And definitely he's in that sort of Fred Taylor category already where it's it's like the injuries just suck and, and and no matter what we do, we won't be able to anticipate them or, or you know, uh, it, it, you won't be able to cash in on his talents without incurring some of that risk, obviously. But when he is on the field, there's just not very many people who can do what he does. No, he, he's absolutely special. I totally agree there. I'm still like surprised that, that he fell as far as he did in his draft uh, back in 2017. Um, and I, I kind of want to use this as a jumping off point. Um, to just talk about uh, about running backs in general and getting to their second contract and and I feel like the NFL sort of has a problem right now where the, the running back position when it's on the field 
is like an important position. Uh, but like the players themselves can, you know, their, their short, their shelf lives are so short. And we've seen time and time again, uh, teams get buyer's remorse when they pay heavily um, into that second contract for their running back. So there, do you think that there's some sort of way maybe in the next CBA or something to where running backs can get to that second contract faster when, you know, when it's not going to be a diminished return on it? I really don't know. I mean, it's complicated either way. And part of what makes it complicated in the first place is the salary cap, which if they didn't have the salary cap, it's not like it would just make running backs, uh, you know, a hot commodity. It's not like teams are only pinching their salaries over that reason. Um, But it would just create more opportunities for kind of bidding to happen. And like uh, um, it, it would make the scarcity, I think, more drastic, especially in a case of a talent like Cooks, because, yeah, it's it's like um, it's not going to do anything for, for the average running back free agent. And, and uh, even with Cook, he he's still no matter what, he will not get paid what he what he's basically deserved to be paid. But if he's in the, out there and like if, if some team is just loaded, they're already going all in and, and there was not a cap you know, to keep them from spending more. Wouldn't they just spend that money having already spent as much as they did um, to, to assure, make, make that much more certain the, the sort of, uh, you know, outcome that they were already spending in pursuit of. And I, I think a case like that, it's like cook could kind of have one of those contracts where it's, it's, it's almost like Kirk cousins contract where it's like the team knows they're overpaying, but they're like, what, whatever we're, we think this is going to get us a win. So we're, we're just going to do it even yeah, it's 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 one thing to frame a cost to someone as as just uh, here's what the typical market rate is on this past examples of this thing, and it's another to view it the cost as uh, coming with a, a a relatively certain outcome that you just don't get toward normally. It's like you, you start to not really think about the cost in those cases, and running backs don't get that scenario the way like you know NBA max contract kind of stuff can be. There's like those loopholes in there, and then of course baseball. Um, doesn't have anything. So I think that's one thing working against them. But yeah, it's just, it's just a unique labor setup because a lot of people will like to, will try to make the ideologically driven case that, uh, running backs don't matter because the function is like illegitimate and, and the talent is not valid. And I think what they're doing is they're mistaking the, the high expiration rate of running backs for, Uh, an absence of value and utility in the first place. It's not that in the wrong, because it's not that running backs aren't useful. It's like, if you can't, if you've never seen a star running back in the NFL and seen uh, the way that they can just kind of take over a game, change the complexion of an entire team, then you just don't really understand football. Like you, you might be good at balancing budgets or something like that, but you don't grasp the inner workings that lead to those outcomes. Uh, so you should stop talking about them, but it's like the, the scarcity or sorry, the, uh, it's, it's not that they're dispensable. It's that they break so fast that it makes you, it makes you rationally, um, it makes it rational to be, to be scared to ever put money on them. Cause it's like, there's, it's the highest, the demonstrated highest risk of losing the money. So it's like they almost need their own pay scale or something. Yes, they they that's need like what I'm talking ha- about. They need their own running backs like guild, and they need hazard pay of some kind. And um, it's just it's just like the nature of the running back position and, and the beating that it takes. It, it, there's no way to make a free market structure that'll pay them what they're worth and what they deserve. More importantly, because the, the nature of their work makes makes it 
perilous to for them to stay healthy and and so you use that basis to not pay them but it's it's not that the you know it's not like todd Gurley at his peak wasn't worth the money that he got in his contract it's that his knee went bust after that you know it's 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 uh mistaking the the danger of the position for the disposability of the position and it's in my opinion actually a pretty warped worldview and has uh pretty toxic moral implications there yeah i mean that I think you, you summed it up really, really well there. And um, it, I especially liked what you were talking about, where it's like the, the way that running back functions, uh, you know, uh, relative to the rest of the positions in football and the physicality that uh, and the just beating uh, that that position that's inherent to that position, um, it it just pretends to that that shorter shelf life and i think todd Gurley is that perfect example where you're talking about what a star running back does to 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 take over games i mean you look at 2017 you look at 2018 uh, when the rams were were really rolling on offense and Gurley was such a huge part of that then you look at the end of 2018 the end of their their uh you know uh, bid at a Super Bowl, and then uh, this past year where he just wasn't uh, the same guy, and it, it 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 shows you both sides of the coin of of how much of a help to an offense a dominant running back can be, but also the perils of sinking a lot of cost um, into it. So yeah, I would just like to see a way where running backs were able to to make their max amount of money for what they're for the value that they're providing to a team sooner, so they could you know in a way. They won't have to like get to that holdout going into their fourth season to get what they deserve because they're already you know putting out maybe yeah. their peak outputs in those first two three seasons. Yeah, I I really don't know what the the solution would be, and there's there basically is none. Um, there are things that could be done to give those running backs what they deserve though. And and there's the problem is there's no political interest in doing it because there aren't that many running backs relative to other players. And uh, certainly the owners are always eager to, to, to uh, co-opt any sort of uh, analysis that will say like, you should actually pay the players less. It's like, Oh wow. Uh, Jerry Jones here. Uh, guess what? Running backs don't matter. Like, oh, <laughs> nice work guys. Yeah, nice work. Um, so what, whatever it's, it's, um, I wish people would be a little bit more clear eyed and, and more self-aware of, of kind of like their motives and, and the motives of these institutions when they when they consider these, uh, you know, value based calculations on things, because I think it, it, it's in their nature to just look at everything as a spreadsheet and not like actual people. But, um, yeah, it's like running backs are kind of the migrant workers of the NFL economy. It's just like they have no rights and the other workers are happy to see them uh, demonized because it's more for them afterward, basically. It, it, totally. And, um, you know, it, it's interesting. You can kind of see the ripple effects uh, a little bit further further down uh, the road here um, at, at like the high school recruiting and college level. Like I remember uh, in the class of 2019. So this past uh, recruiting cycle, uh, Qu- uh, Quiveris Couch, uh, he, he ended up committing to Tennessee and he was a pretty high recruit, top 100 uh, type recruit. And he was initially listed as a running back on twenty four seven sports, but he made the decision, uh, I think, late in in his or like right before his senior season, to switch to the other side of the ball because you know he kind of read the tea leaves and was like, running back is not the way I'm going to make the most money, so I'm I'm going to right. to switch my position uh, with the hopes of of things working out there. So th- therefore, I have a higher earning ceiling. Yeah, definitely, and um, that's. It's going to be one of those things where probably there's going to be a little bit of a talent um, departure from the position, but mm-hmm. 
I don't know. It's 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 one of those things. There's always going to be some talented guy who steps in too. So it, it, I hope that people don't uh, look at like the increasing size and athleticism that's about to happen at like whatever linebacker and defensive end and corner and safety and and use it as an enduring justification to to keep paying these these now lesser breed running backs uh, less than you know if they were ever going to get even if they were still you know the the Jamal Lewis's or whoever else the the number one athletes probably were back then uh who were put at running back instead of uh, yeah it's like if Jamal Lewis comes out now he's 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 a he, he's like I don't know Josh Uchi or something like that like he's he's not playing running back anymore no exactly so yeah there, there's a steer away from it um so yeah there, there's really interesting stuff and interesting implications coming uh down the road from this so hopefully yeah we don't we don't run into that like talent desert um at running back because you know bottom line if I if I am watching a game I do love to see uh a team running the hell out of the ball with it with a good uh star running back um before we get into your article we have a message from our friends over at dynasty owner the best fantasy football leagues are those where every owner constantly pays attention responds to trade offers changes their lineup and are always looking to improve their team there is no off season for these owners that's who you're going against in dynasty owner other elite fantasy football players who are committed to competing Dynasty Owner is the only fantasy football platform with a patent game using actual NFL salaries and contracts. Combine this with a salary cap, elite trading options, advanced team rosters, and devoted elite owners to compete against, and you're faced with the same decisions NFL owners and general managers must make. If you're ready to take on the best, then don't miss out. Join the waitlist at DynastyOwner.com. That's DynastyOwner.com. All right, Mario, let's get into uh, your Dynasty Watch uh, article from this week went up on Monday. We got six guys uh, who you identified as as pieces that if you if you have them on your respective roster, you should consider moving. Let's start things out um, with the. If you have anything to add, or if I didn't sum up the premise of the article correctly, uh, go on, and then uh, let's get to Russell Gage. Yeah, that that was all uh, correct. What you said and. Yeah, I, I'm not trying to um, say all these players are the same degree of urgency. I actually list them in uh, descending urgency. So Gage is first on the list, and that's because I'm if I'm a Gage owner in any dynasty league, I am just trying to scam him off onto somebody else and and just get something. Um, I guess there, I guess you don't need to do it right this particular second, but I, I would do it before training camp gets it underway because I think it's going to be one of those things where people are assuming he's going to do this because he was kind of the last one to do it. Like he was the slot receiver for Atlanta last year by default, basically after the Mohamed Sanu trade. And they just never really had anybody else to so much as compete with him for it. <clears throat> like they were kind of grooming him as an undrafted free agent, uh, athlete project type. Um, because at LSU, even though he was he was at receiver, I want to say for at least two or three years, he never amounted to an actual receiver. He basically just took uh, jet sweeps and arounds. That's all he really did. And but he, but he always had that quality on tape that people would fall for where it's he looks fast and elusive because he's just kind of doing a lot. Like he's it's just like feet and hands are moving a bunch. He's, he's changing directions a lot, but he doesn't actually do as much as your eyes th- think he's doing. Like if you look at the actual stats and, and what he does relative to what other players do with the same usage, he's pretty clearly a drain on the offense. Like he's this theoretical talent that doesn't have any practical use. And even as far as his perceived athletic upside, it's pretty limited because he, he ran a 4-4-2 at the LSU Pro Day back for his draft. And 
that's fast generally speaking, but a, it's probably no better than a four, four, five if it's at the combine and it's, it's at serious, serious risk of being more like a four, five, two at the NFL combine and doing it at 180 pounds, six foot. That's just not interesting. Really. It's, it's like it, when you're that skinny, it's not impressive to, to run a four, four, five at the combine, or at least not impressive when you're known more for, for just taking jet sweeps from the receiver position than actually running routes and catching the ball. So with Gage last year and the year before that, he did the same thing that he did at LSU, which is basically just nothing. Like He wasn't very good. Uh, he was drawing some targets. He wasn't catching very many of them, even though they should have been kind of the easiest, the, the lowest difficulty targets in that offense. So he – at this point, has caught 65.6% of his targets at 6.1 yards per target. And given that he's shown basically stagnation in his development, even going back to LSU, I'm pretty comfortable saying that Russell Gage will either outright lose the slot position role with the Falcons or he will fall into a committee of some kind. It could it could be uh, Calvin Ridley plays more slot snaps than in the past couple of years and maybe – uh, maybe Gage just gets displaced by default and it's some outside receiver who ends up replacing him, even though it's Ridley replacing him in the slot. Mm-hmm. Or it could be that, I, I mean, I'm not giving up on Olamides Zacchaeus, however you pronounce it. Uh, he should be a pretty prototypical slot receiver. And unlike Russell Gage, he was highly productive, uh, pretty memorable volume actually at, at Virginia, including pretty early in his career. So I like Zacchaeus to displace him. And even if not, there's these two other guys, Jalen McCleskey, who was a pretty good slot prospect at Oklahoma State before he transferred to Tulane. And then there's also this guy who I don't know much about, but last two years uh, at Tennessee State, this this other undrafted rookie, Chris Rowland, he's he's way too small. He's he's like a Jakeem Grant sort of case. Like he's he's probably like five six and a half, one eighty or something. But they say he runs a four four eight forty. And at Tennessee State, the last two years, he's been averaging a hundred yards a game. So he could be like one of those guys doesn't need to fully kick Gage out of the lineup to make him useless, you know, because he's he's already barely clinging uh, to relevancy because he needs on a, because on of a, volume. Yeah, on the volume, and it's like if he goes from a 60-snap slot receiver in the Atlanta offense to a 28-snap player, like he's not going to be useful anywhere. And I think it's a pretty high risk that Zacchaeus just displaces him outright or that some combination of Zacchaeus, McCleskey, and Chris Rowland just do enough to make him useless. So uh, there are some people who have their hopes up that Gage is some sort of sleeper uh, as a slot receiver in this, you know, understandably because this is is a a position where – Gage was already targeted pretty uh, consistently last year, and Sanu was pretty productive there before, and, and Matt Ryan tends to post pretty good numbers in the passing game. But I think it's a false premise to think that Gage is an heir to anything in particular in this offense. Like I, I think he's um, kind of just going to hang around, and honestly, like I'm pretty sure Zacchaeus is better. I wouldn't be surprised if Gage isn't even on this team uh, come the winter. Yeah, I'm I'm Team Zacchaeus uh, as well, um, but you know I think that, um, and I guess it, you know you're kind of reading the room correctly, and you know because you let off your article with him because there must be some semblance of hype somewhere out there um, re- regarding Gage, and and I think also the fact that uh, the Falcons, you know, if you just look at their overall off season, they didn't really add at receiver, um, so you right. would th- you would think that they were comfortable if if Gage ended last season as the receiver three um, in the offense or, or as the slot receiver um, then, and there weren't any real notable uh, uh, 
competitors added, then they would think, okay, like well, he, he should be due for the same amount of work and he should be uh, better next year. And, and I think that you broke down the, he, that he doesn't really have the profile uh, that, that portends, you know, a, right. a, a big growth. Right. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's like, if you were a better player, if he had shown more to this point, then maybe you could read it as the Falcons stuck with him because they are comfortable. I think it's more like, it's more similar to the running back position, actually. Uh, they're cap strapped, and it's not that they—it's not that they think Brian Hill's so great that they can't wait to go into this year with him, maybe being the backup to this guy who maybe has a, a busted knee. It's that they didn't really have the money to do anything better, and they didn't have many draft picks either. So you 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 hope the practice squad guy Zacchaeus gets better. You hope that Jalen McCleskey, who you're one mid, uh, your, your great plane scout still thinks he's got something. And you, so you sign him and Chris Rowland, your Southeast correspondents. Like, I think this kid's got something and that's the best you can do. And, uh, based on the production of those other candidates, I think we have reason to believe that gauge can't hold them off. Yeah, exactly. And I think also that there's, a case to be made for the way that this offense is going to be shaped where maybe Julio and, and Calvin Ridley alone account for like, you know, upwards of 45% of the target share. Yeah. It's, it's going to be tough to get in on those guys. And especially if Ridley's in the slot, like if Ridley goes in the slot, he might draw targets at just a disgusting rate. Yeah. The, the uh we, we kind of hit like the tip of the iceberg on Ridley last week. And then, and then we got to, to a fuller conversation on him. And now I'm like, itching to get in on a draft soon so i can start to acquire some shares because i really do uh, like his prospects for this year um ridley to be clear not russell gage <laughs> of course <laughs> um all right let's move on um kind of other side of the coin here a, a more veteran player a guy everyone knows and uh you know good a guy who's had a, a great career to this point but goes to a place with kind of a weird landing spot and i think you had a smell out for that uh when this signing happened and that was emmanuel sanders uh ending up in new orleans uh so what do you make of him now and, and what makes him uh someone that you'd be looking to deal in dynasty well it's kind of a cop-out entry on my part because of course uh, sell the 33 year old receiver is not uh useful advice in most cases but I, I try to say a little more specifically like i don't even think he can really give you much this year it, it's not that i'm thinking cash out while you can because he's gonna have to retire in a couple of years I, I'm, I'm a little more concerned that people are just overvaluing him right now and and that's the basis for trying to move him because i i understand why some people would look to him as kind of a, a sort of like 12th 13th round pick in in one season redraft whatever because he was effective last year like he was a good receiver and and it's 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 even more so impressive how he was uh pretty busy out of the gates even with that late 2018 achilles tendon tear which is just yeah, that was I don't even I still don't know how he came back that fast and maybe someone could even reason oh so he'll be even more strong physically after a year to recover but I I just I don't think that that would be true for a 33 year old receiver I think if anything it's it's more likely to still just be a downward descent yeah, that probably shortens your career your career span more than anything well it's it's just um so well. it's one of those things where at that age, you just you're you're like uh, your muscle, whatever fibers and, and tendons and stuff aren't as elastic, and and uh, you know they they're just not as 
alive as they used to be. So it's it's generally the case that a player who comes back from a big injury will be better off in the second year than the first. But what if that you know does that really play out in practice when that person should be declining? anyway on the basis of their age like at best i'm thinking he stays the same as last year and you know 33 that's that's kind of asking a lot that's where it's it gets really hard for even good receivers to stay afloat at that sort of uh, trajectory and i think he'll still be good because part of why emmanuel sanders always was good is because he just knows how to play receiver really well like he's he's good at wide receiver stuff but it that might not be enough to to be more than a situationally useful player because he was efficient last year, but I think you already see signs of this decline because uh, even though he caught whatever 68% of his passes uh, targets, I should say at nine yards a target, he wasn't drawing targets nearly as often as in the past. So the way I read that is like, he's still doing these things well on certain plays, but he just can't do it as regularly as he used to. And specifically what I'm saying is last year he drew targets on, uh, sorry, he averaged, 0.113 0.113 targets per snap and over the two years prior combined it was more like 0.15 so i know that doesn't sound like much but that's just you know over the course of 800 snaps that kind of stuff adds up and i think it takes a pretty big leap of faith to think the pendulum would swing the other way going to a team where the the two leading targets are as non-negotiable as any other offense in the league where michael thomas especially the it's the whole offense is for him basically like you're not it's not going to help your share uh, projections by going to a michael thomas offense generally speaking and then there's alvin kamara too uh latavius murray could be pretty well involved Taysom hill could be involved jared cook is still there and it's it's like it's enough to be crowd called crowded in the first place i think and then it's i think um structurally made more crowded yet by just the kind of personnel direction of subtracting the downfield speed emphasis of Ted Ginn, which has been a constant part of this offense, not not Ted Ginn specifically, but the function that he served has been constant going back to the whole initial breakout of Drew Brees in New Orleans, however long ago that was already. It uh, seems, seems like a, do- a dozen years six. or something. Yeah, it's been, a, it's been a long time. And back then, initially, it was Devery Henderson, and after him, it was Robert Meacham and Kenny Stills and then Ted Ginn. And that's something I, like I don't think it was coincidental that these other good things happened th- this whole time while that downfield speed threat was there. I, th- I think that was that was part of the formula. You know, you you create the room for whoever Marcus Colston, Jimmy Graham, everybody else underneath uh, Reggie Bush, largely because their safety's running with this other guy. Drew Brees might still be good this year, but he's throwing – he's more dependent than ever underneath, uh, as de- as dependent on underneath passes as any quarterback in the league, basically, uh, to be more specific. And it's it's no longer going to have that downfield speed threat. So Ted Ginn might be a terrible receiver, and he basically is, but – he still is a player that the safety would keep track of. And if Ted Ginn was running uncovered, a safety would go after him. It's less likely to reach that same tension point in a play design if you're going to have Emmanuel Sanders as the outside receiver opposite Michael Thomas or Traquan Smith as the fastest receiver on the field. Jared Cook is now the main downfield pass-catching threat in this offense. And even if he's fast for a tight end, that's just a huge structural distinction from someone like Henderson or Stills or Meacham or even Ted Ginn. So I think 
it's it's asking a lot of a quarterback as old as Breeze to still be good at this one thing that he is now he's he's like only good at that one thing and i think you're 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 making him be better at it than ever uh by basically being predictable because if that if that speed threat isn't there and if if it's not convincing like if you want to send emmanuel sanders on a go route it's it's still not going to have the same effect on the defensive strategy as if it was ted ginn running it you know and so i think by having sanders out there they're making it harder on all of those receivers, Sanders and Thomas and uh, I guess whoever else, Kamara, Traquan Smith, because the safeties are going to be closer to all of them than they were, were ever before. So are you, you know, to a larger point then, uh, I think a lot of people have the Saints uh, as maybe they're the favorite to come out of the NFC. Do you feel like that, you know, would you would you bet against that happening at this point? Because of, you know, the you know, you laid out the case where uh even though Ted Ginn wasn't overly productive, he was still serving an important function of getting the defense spread out a little bit more so that Michael Thomas could work the way that he does. And now that speed element isn't there. This offense could just, you know, kind of be playing within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage more often than not. Is that, you know, reason for concern for the, for like a saints win total even? I think it's, it's not great. So I don't condemn the the Saints offense as a whole uh, quite on that basis just because it wouldn't be surprising if they kind of rebranded as just a really highly productive rushing offense because that offensive line should be among the best in the league and um, Sean Payton's still a really creative coach like he's he's had his ups and downs but uh, over a time period like he's he's been the head coach of the Saints. Ups and downs is actually totally fine because it shows that he's withstanding the counter adjustments. Like it shows that every time they kill him off, he still comes back later. And so you don't really want to bet against a guy like that because even if he has to do something new, uh, he, he's shown the ability to do that already. But it's just it's going to be, I think, diminishing returns for Breeze relative to what some people expect. And it, it might be just the efficiency. It might be both – the, the efficiency and the volume of it. it might just be the volume but that's kind of what i'm leaning toward it's like something has to give because drew Brees, the theory of drew Brees in this offense just it, it has never had the components that they're going into this year with so it it necessarily has to be different and you know that's an unknown and i i think more importantly even if it's an unknown it's it's not specifically what people have in mind and if if you're paying players on the or sorry if you're buying players in fantasy drafts on the basis of some particular idea it should be important to you to make sure that that idea is actually accurate like it it's we can be right on the basis of you know generalities of course like so, sometimes you can't do better than a generality um but i think people might be fundamentally getting the vision wrong with this offense which should make people maybe reconsider if if anyone agrees with that all right support for this podcast comes from wild turkey kentucky straight bourbon whiskey let's tune in to their one-on-one with jamal a real bartender from old fourth ward in atlanta i really get into the backstory of whatever i'm pouring out of respect there are literally years of experience behind these bottles wild turkey same recipe since 1942 if you want a true classic this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, America, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. All right, let's uh, let's move on to uh, the third third uh, 
entry in your article, uh, Justin Jackson of the Los Angeles Chargers. He's a, an interesting guy, um, and you know I'm, I'm paying extra close attention because I actually have him in the Rotowire Dynasty League. So um, if any of my coworkers are also listening to this podcast, uh, you can fast forward so I can figure out how to release <laughs> you later on. Um, but yeah, J- Jackson, a guy who um, I I was really low on coming out of college because didn't have great athleticism he didn't have um you know a frame really either that that you would think uh would match up with his type of usage at northwestern where he was getting like 300 plus carries a game it's like okay he's got to be like a 215 220 pound bruiser type of guy like no much much uh, smaller than that so um you know that that wasn't great he didn't have the production uh or the efficiency in college there so i was surprised to see him do as well as he was back in 2018 specifically when, when melvin gordon was out for a bit um i thought that he looked not quite as good as eckler but i, I think i can remember like that steelers game late in 2018 he J- justin jackson looked really good in that one if i remember correctly uh so there have been instances where it's like okay this guy looks like he can play at this level um but then you you know turn the corner into this year um you know the there as opposed to there being Melvin Gordon and Austin Eckler uh standing between him and the field now there's just Eckler but uh the Chargers did also bring on um a rookie who's pretty impressive in Josh Kelly yeah so I guess we could be a little briefer with Jackson just because we talked a little bit about him recently but my worry about him is basically that he has probably some skill and he has some athletic talent, but he has an unusually lanky and, and light frame for a running back to be six foot and sub 200 just isn't very good. Like you, you're still kind of skinny at six foot if you're any less than 210 uh, because Kelly is about an inch shorter and he's 14 pounds heavier. So right there, Kelly is kind of like the specific example of, of uh, the pitfall, I guess, of a, of a running back like Jackson because he can, Jackson can be good at running back stuff and he can be fast or quick in some sense or another. But when you're on a frame that's ill-suited to kind of harness football functions – you have a, you usually hit a diminishing return at some point or you hit some physical limitation at some point, some functional limitation at some point. And I think in Jackson's case, even if he would be in a vacuum, you know, good on some sort of play call, some sort of carry or another, the things that are – the functions that are open for, for up for grabs in that offense are, are basically the things that Austin Eckler can't do or, or that, that Austin Eckler doesn't generally do. And – Austin Eckler is already a really good player, and and very importantly, he's the best at catching him on running backs. That's a pretty important avenue for for a running back like Jackson to have open if if he's going to have much upside or or consistent utility. Because if you're underweight, if you're if you're not dense as a running back, if you're more of a in space kind of back in theory rather than a running back who gets a lot of reps and accumulates volume that way, you need to get receptions, especially to take advantage of the PPR uh, kind of ubiquity in fantasy football at this point. It's like you need that passing game functions. But being on the team with Eckler just cuts you off like Mm -hmm. totally from that, and it doesn't help to have you know, the three pass catches that they do between Allen and Henry and, and Williams in addition to that. So that cuts off a really important lane for Jackson, I think. And then the running back, or sorry, the pure running functions out of the backfield are really all that's realistically up for grabs. And I just think Kelly projects better there. Okay. Yeah, that's it. So it's just not that, not that Jackson is like a, a poor player. It's more that like his role, like his standing, his value to the charters is, is less than where it would be on, on another team almost. 
and people often envision him as, as this lottery ticket, like a high upside kind of gamble. And I think it's very much the opposite. I think he's a low upside gamble. Oof. So that, those aren't the kind of gambles that we like here. Um, let's move on. Uh, Rob Gronkowski, um, another guy who, you know, I, I think that he went. Uh, so we held our draft, our dynasty draft before the actual NFL draft. And I think right. Gronk with, went with one of the very last picks and it was like, oh, yeah. cheeky. And then, oh, my God, he actually uh, is coming back to the NFL. Um, so what do you do with him if, if you have him? Yeah, that was that was like the third to last pick or something like that. And I, I think it was Tim Schuler and Paul Martinez that got him. So that was a good pick. Um, however, if I was them, I would try to sell Gronkowski right now just because – there's the possibility this this is just one of those uh, quick ones i guess because uh, yeah he's he's older like emmanuel sanders and the fact that he wouldn't come out of retirement except for tampa bay and, and that tom brady is the condition in that case and that at 43 years old tom brady might be a condition that just disappears pretty quick uh, you can't really take much for granted with gronkowski in the long term so obviously it makes sense to sell in that sense but some people are thinking i think it's kind of like sanders too where it's emmanuel sanders i should say it, it's like People are probably expecting a little too much for this year even. And so he, he's Gronkowski is more like the tight end 19 or 20 for me in Dynasty. And I think it's as simple as there's a lot of people who think of him more like the tight end 10 or 12 or something, uh, maybe even more than that, because I've seen some mainstream fantasy analysts rank him as sixth in, in single season, sixth uh, tight end. So that would put him ahead of guys like Higby, maybe Henry, uh, players that he should not be ranked ahead of even in redraft. And so if there are people who think that along those lines in your league and you own Gronk, I think it's just one of those, you know, categorical opportunity things where it's like if the market's laid out this way, you should probably try to exploit it because it won't be this way uh, in the future. But I, I think, um, you know, as far as that Tampa Bay offense goes, even if they're a two tight end offense, that's not necessarily reassuring for Gronk specifically. Like that's reassuring for OJ Howard specifically, not Gronk. Like a three wide one tight end offense would probably better suit Gronk because OJ Howard is a pretty similar player in terms of, you know, that six, six two fifty five, uh, better downfield than they are on, uh, hooks and curls and stuff. So I think, um, if, if, if Gronk was on a sort of 780 yard, three or four touchdown pace, two years ago, uh, which is Tom Brady being two years younger too as well. Uh, I don't see how that's going to be easier for him to accumulate numbers after the time off, uh, being two years older himself and being on a team where it's Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, OJ Howard, instead of Julian Edelman, Josh Gordon and Chris Hogan. So I just think people are not thinking clearly about Gronk generally. And, uh, if, if some of those people are in your league, you know, even if uh, like you don't need to move Gronk out of your lineup, you don't need to look at your starting lineup for this year. And if you're competing this year, you don't need to look at your tight end position and be like, oh, my God, I got to get rid of Gronk. Uh, it's not like he's a hot potato for, for your particular team, but especially if you're not realistically competing this year, just just sell him. OK, um, I'm just trying to think of like the perspective owners that would that would be on the side of buying Gronk uh, right now. And it, it's got to well, be a team that's like a win now and just yeah. needs a little bit of added tight end depth. Yeah. And if it's, if it's somebody who has like Chris Herndon, for instance, I would see if I could trade Gronkowski for Chris Herndon and like 
a third round rookie pick or something like that or anything really because I, I would just rather have Herndon in a vacuum. So, so I guess I guess I would take Gronk uh, for Herndon straight up, uh, especially if I wasn't trying to go all in for this year. Uh, but that's the general thing I would look at, I guess. I was like, I think there's a few um, tight end OJ Howard even like I would trade Rob Gronkowski for OJ Howard in a, you know, some other toss in thing that hopefully improves my depth or gives me some sort of lottery ticket somewhere else on my bench. I see. Yeah, I'm. I'm certainly. You know, I'm. I'm pretty much out on on Gronk and redraft, and then dynasty. Uh, you know, doubly so. But I think that whatever whatever his best days in Tampa Bay are going to be, it's it starts like week one, and you know everything from there. I think might be a quitty, pretty quick uh, downhill. So I, I'm not I'm not sold on that on that ending up working out. But if you're out there and you got him, uh, you know, see what you can potentially get down the road uh for gronk uh let's get on to a guy who yeah i think that this this these next two are, are probably the most interesting for not that not that uh these other guys are are uninteresting but these are these are some guys that I, i've considered on my dynasty teams um or have some interest in in season long um, I liked what Hunter Renfro did a year ago um, in this Raiders offense. I, I thought that, you know, for being a later round draft pick, I was like, well, you know, he plays so close to the line of scrimmage. He's got really good good hands. Like, there's there's no doubt about that. Derek Carr likes to throw it short. Like, this seems to work. Um, so, yeah. you, you know, it, it fits well with, the, with what is in place uh, with the Raiders. But what gives you pause about him in the long run? Well, he was good last year. Like, I don't want to take that away from him. And he's, I think going to be plenty consistently involved this year too. So if you're owning Renfro, I, I actually put like a much lower, you know, urgency figure on him, uh, as opposed to one of the earlier players that we mentioned here. But I do think if I was a Renfro owner, even if I was looking to use him this year, I would try to move him before the season is over because I, I just think this year or the 2019 rookie year will actually go down as his biggest fantasy seasons with the Raiders because there's just not theoretical room for growth that I can see anyway. And I think there were already indicators in his 2019 production that, um, that kind of hinted that his 2019 output was pretty close to the ceiling. And especially because of things like, um, I don't know the exact uh, yards after the catch that he averaged, but um, it was it was well above the league average, even though he's well below the league average as an athlete. And even though his entire Clemson career where he was he was kind of the similar player at Clemson, it's like he just didn't have a big role. He was pretty reliable within it, but he just wasn't really the kind of talent to really increase his grip on an offense. So like. Um, it, it's funny that you mentioned that because maybe that this could have like an exact parallel to that where um, earlier on in his Clemson career, like the, the season that he um, caught the game winning touchdown in the, in the national championship game, Clemson didn't have a loaded receiving core. Like, uh, cause I think yeah. Dion Kane. Uh, yeah. Uh, my, my, Mike Williams, uh, was, was really good that year, but like there, there wasn't the star studded, um, group that, that, uh, was, characteristic of his final two years at Clemson when they when they had T Higgins uh when they had Justin Ross and T Higgins back oh, back in 2018 that that sort of thing and Renfro's you know role was kind of phased out and he only had such big usage in 2016 because there wasn't a ton of other options and now we saw him have that big year 
last year, and now we're looking at a Raiders team that just added Henry Ruggs, that just added Brian Edwards, that has an ascending still Darren Waller. So this could end up being a a very similar thing to Clemson, where it's just like they they stop needing to lean on a guy like Renfro because they actually have legit outside options. Yeah, definitely. And I think think I've got everything kind of gallowed now. He last year, even as good as his rookie season was, his production as a starter, or, um, he wasn't truly a starter because he's just the slot receiver. Like he only plays in three wide, but he basically was on the bench in week one. And then week two, he was basically their first string slot receiver onward. And if you just take those games onward and project them over 16 games, he only comes out to uh, 63 catches for 778 yards and five touchdowns, which is still like efficient but the efficiency itself is not grounds to project volume growth because you should actually probably project uh, efficiency regression name to go back to that yards after the catch point um god i hope i didn't lose it in my uh, okay so he was averaging 6.3 yards after the catch per catch and if it was precisely the league average which i think is what we should project for a player like him like you, you have grounds for projecting under the league average, I think, uh, given what he did at Clemson and, and kind of how mediocre his athleticism is. But if you just project it for average, no worse than that, it still takes off 2.3 yards on all of his receptions on average and lowers his yards per target to 6.9 yards rather than the 8.5 it came out to last year. So if he regresses to the mean for yards after the catch per catch and nothing else changes about the way he was applied last year, then he doesn't all of a sudden he's not even averaging seven yards a target and no one cares about him. So he would either have to play more snaps, which could happen, but you know, he's a skinny slow slot receiver. So probably not. He's probably going to mostly play in three wide uh, so unless that happens or unless Derek Carr throws for more yards or unless one of these other pieces from the offense just gets subtracted and then even then it's like, OK, you, you remove Tyrell Williams. Congratulations. Now you get to deal with Brian Edwards. He's probably better anyway. Um, there's just I just don't see what would offset this this likely incoming regression with with Renfro's after the catch work. Uh, he, to be fair, he, he was credited with a few dropped passes that he probably won't drop in the future. But even then, you're looking at like a. A baseline of a, of a catch rate in YPA similar to what Derek Carr's completion rate in YPA is, and it's just Carr had a career year last year too. Like his his completion percentage and yards uh, per attempt were at career highs, just as his yards after the catch average jumped too. So in other words, it might specifically be Renfro's. Uh, unsustainable after the catch numbers that were responsible for Carr's career year last year. And and both things are likely to regress, I think, under the same basis. Well, you know, if Henry Ruggs starts his own moving company, then, then maybe you can bump uh, Hunter. Renfro I guess I should say, though, it, it, there is a pretty decent chance that Henry Ruggs' speed does change the equation. And, and maybe actually Renfro never does regress in yards after the catch per catch because maybe he just has more room to run after the catch because Ruggs is there. But um, I don't know. I just I just think Brian Edwards is really good. I don't know how people could believe otherwise when he basically matched the production of Debo Samuel at South Carolina, even though he's about two and a half, three years younger. And I also think Lynn Bowden is pretty clearly a wide receiver. They are, I, I think it, it actually my tr- my little uh, conspiracy theory or whatever is that they actually called him a running back to not hurt Hunter Renfro's feelings. Ooh. Interesting. You like that? Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> no, not so much as hurt his feelings, but like to to just 
like I could imagine Mayock like, oh, they're going to ask about Renfro. Call him a running back. <laughs> I like I li- talk. any sort of deep state Raiders talk I- I'm here for. But I-, I think also Bowden could be the second best running back on that team, though, too. So there's a there's a lot that Bowden can do. For, they for signed Richard, though, and Richard's automatic as a pass catcher, even if he is uh, responsible for the, the COVID Bowden. pandemic. <laughs> yeah, that, that is a problem. But uh, Bowden, pretty good, pretty good at catching out of the backfield, too, though. Or, yeah, I think. Yeah, definitely. It's and and Bowden like like I think he can play running back, but it's like why wouldn't he play receiver? He's really good at it. Um, so yeah, I, I thought that was a little strange. Uh, I think though, Bowden and Edwards by twenty twenty one will basically force the issue, and I think uh, probably week nine at that point will be like no later than that will be Renfro's peak as a Raider. Okay, I think I am gonna try to buy Lynn Bowden somewhere though. I'm in, regardless yeah, I, of his position. I was watching some of his tape, and I was looking at some of his numbers before he had to play quarterback last year. And it's like, he's too good at receiver to play running back. That's, he, he's yeah, just too he's good dirty. at receiver to play running back. He, just give him the – I mean, did you see the, the viral clip? I think it was like maybe draft weekend, but it was like a video of him in high school. And like he was basically like trapped – like you know taking the snap from like his heels on his own goal line and like runs around breaks like like eight tackles on way on route to like running like a hundred yard touchdown it was ridiculous yeah i hadn't seen that but his kentucky tape is is pretty amusing too so uh and for whatever it's worth to people at that dea thing at his grandmother's house yesterday uh strange that that came up right after i was like i posted that article and then that came out uh (laughs) you know in the morning i was like did I do this? Because, uh, um, yeah, I'm like, you guys, you got to sell Hunter Renfro. This Lynn Bowden's a problem. And then they're like, DEA uh, is arresting Lynn Bowden. But it turned out to be nothing, basically. Uh, so Lynn Bowden is not a character risk, despite whatever headlines people might have seen yesterday. Yeah, that, that was really strange. But, yeah, it didn't seem like anything really came of that. All right, let's round it out with our last player to talk about. We got Devontae Parker coming off an amazing year last year where everyone who was holding out the faith for however many years he's been in the league, this is the year he's <laughs> going to break out. It happened, man. It was great. Now what? Yeah, and he is that player. It's not that. Um, it's not like I'm saying he get, he was lucky last year. He might have been lucky in the sense that he didn't get hurt, and he got hurt basically every other year, uh, um, the prior four years with Miami. Last year he stayed perfectly healthy, and not just that though. It was it was a number of other things that I think were the best case scenarios for him. Not just the best to that point in his career, but the best categorically they can be in Miami. Um, one thing could improve there, and that's the quarterback play. Like if 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 Parker sees fewer targets for whatever reason, and it's Tua throwing those passes instead of Fitzpatrick, that opens up the possibility that Parker's just doing that much more damage per target, and it doesn't really matter. But until Tua is starter and also until Tua is as good of a starter as to make that possible specifically, then we're instead left in the meantime with uh, the Dolphins getting Preston Williams back at receiver. And they're kind of the same guy. Like it's it's, uh, it's interesting that they're both in that offense because they're, they're largely the same player. And the one who gets the work might just be the one who the defense isn't paying enough attention to that day. Uh, it's, it's, it's not like they're going to – it's not like Preston Williams will ever be ranked ahead of Parker in that offense, but Parker being out of the offense nonetheless set the stage for Parker to really go wild last year. Like all of his 100 yard games happened after Preston Williams tore his ACL. Um, I want to say five of his nine touchdowns were in the eight games after Preston Williams tore his ACL. So 
with, with those things in mind and then the fact that Preston Williams was targeted a little bit more uh, frequently per snap, uh, I want to say it was it was a point one uh, targets per snap more and point one air yards more per snap uh, than Parker. Both of them were like Parker was also upper percentiles for, for those things all. Uh, but Williams was still a little bit ahead of him. So Parker will probably start fast this year um because because williams will presumably have some rust to shake off with that acl that he's coming back from um but kind of like renfro it's like i i think parker from week six or so onward will will almost have to regress because parker will increase his his uh you know impact in the offense but beyond that too last year's conditions weren't just the absence of preston williams it was the absence of a defense entirely, which kind of set the stage for these these scenarios where Fitzpatrick's dropping back and chucking it at Parker over and over. Mm-hmm. Um, they might not make those those play calls in the first place with a defense that's added. I can't even remember all the people. They basically added an entire new starting defense, uh, not the least of which being at corner with Byron Jones and Noah Igbinagin at corner. So that, that's a huge change that the safety Brandon Jones might be decent out of Texas in the third round. They added Kyle Van Noy at inside slash outside linebacker. They added Shaq Lawson and Emmanuel Ogba at outside linebacker. Uh, Raekwon Davis at defensive tackle. There's just a ton more on defense on that team than last year. So they will be better on defense. They don't even need to be good to make enough of a difference that it screws with the game script formula that Parker was dependent on last year. So they can just be slightly below average and it could still meaningfully alter the the whole script that Parker plays with. So that's one thing. The other thing is, um, or sorry, that's the second thing in addition to Preston Williams. And then the third thing is the running game was a complete zero last year too. And that's not going to be the case in 2020 because Jordan Howard and Matt Breida don't even need to be good to be worlds better than, uh, especially Kalen Bellage and also Laird and, and Miles Gaskin. So compare is better than like he's the third best running back on that team, at least. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I mean, I think Laird can be fine as a pass catching specialist, but yeah, the Balage Laird combo at running back in the running game last year, you're never going to see that anything as desolate. bad as that. That was won't horrible. see anything as bad as that ever again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So um, all of that combined. Uh, so you're a Dolphins truther now. Dolphins win in the East. Uh, they're, they're probably going to be a pain. I mean, they were they took out the Patriots. You know, they they took away their home field advantage. They the, the Titans might have kicked off the head, but uh, you know the the Dolphins definitely got them uh, on their knees beforehand. And it it was you know they're just going to be one of those teams that you you hate to see them because it's like you're 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 expected to beat them. No one cares if you win, but but they're just pests, and, and it's like easy to lose against them if you don't take them seriously enough. Um, but yeah, good defense, improved running, or not good at defense, but a much better defense, a much better running game. Preston Williams back. Um, I think last year was pretty clearly the best case scenario for Parker, but uh, he, I want to be clear. He is really good, and I don't think you should feel any urgency to trade him. He's he's the kind of guy you should espe- you should especially consider uh, looking into his market if you're not competing this year because uh, some team that is a contender might tell themselves they, – they may be willing to pay – you know, that dollar and five cents on the dollar because they'll tell themselves this isn't a rental like this is a long term piece. And they'd basically be right, but they'd still be getting less than what they think they would. Interesting. Yeah, that, I'm still trying to, to work out where I land on the Devonte Parker question for this year. But, but you lay out a really good case just about how that that final stretch after Williams went out last year is probably the, the optimal 
um, scenario. And, and then, of course, all the other factors with the uh, run game, with the quarterback situation, with the defense, all of that uh, on the upswing. It can't get much better. That, um, but, yeah, yeah, don't don't sell them for peanuts or anything like d- definitely make sure you get a real nice, uh, you know, set of assets back for them before you think of letting them go. Yeah, that definitely checks out. All right, that's going to wrap things up for this week's RotoWire NFL podcast. For Mario Puig, I'm John McKechnie. Thanks for listening. Again, this is the RotoWire NFL podcast brought to you by Dynasty Owner. the story of the one as head of maintenance at a concert hall he knows the show must always go on that's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working the hvac is humming and his facility shines with Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces plus 24 7 customer support his venue never misses a beat call quickgranger.com or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done